0: So Romans chapter 6 beginning at verse 15, listen carefully to God's Word. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is indeed the word of our Lord. Well, like uh, last week, uh, this morning, we, well, we have to talk about sin, but not only that, the uh, rather uneasy relationship that a Christian has with uh, his or her sin. So we can reflect upon the beginning of Romans chapter 6 as we begin Romans 6.15. When we look at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, Paul asks this question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound or that grace may increase? Paul was assuming that there would be some in the church at Rome who uh, really and truly wanted to persist in sinful behavior because, as they would say to themselves, uh, there's always enough grace. And Paul says, by no means, because a Christian has been united to Christ in his death on the cross, and, and because of that, we're, we're no longer enslaved by sin. We have been uh, set free from sin and are commanded not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And This all at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. Uh, Paul says in verse 14, just before our passage begins this morning, sin has no dominion over us. And Paul uh, summarizes this view in verse 15. You are not under law, but under grace. And that brings us then to verse 15. Uh, again, it's another question having to do with sin and that uneasy relationship that a Christian has with their sin. And so in Romans six fifteen. Paul asks if there might be another excuse for us to sin. Paul assumes that uh, we're tenacious with regards to our own sin. Uh, We are, uh, as it may be, uh, uh, self-justified sinners, always looking to justify our sin. And so, uh, whereas before in Romans 6.1, Paul assumed that some wanted to continue in old sin habits, which we do, Now, here in 6.15, he's assuming that some in the Roman church uh, want to sin with actually a new uh, vigor, uh, a new energy, which we do. Because in the second half of Romans 6, there are folks that are saying, if there's no law to stop me, Romans 5.14, well, now's the time to sin with freedom. And just like he says in the beginning of Romans chapter 6, the first question about sin, he answers, Here, by no means. Now, let me be very clear about this. Uh, Both in Rome and in Chattanooga, Christians have an uneasy relationship with sin. On the one hand, we know that we're not made for sin, Uh, we know that God is holy. We know that God uh, does not desire sin. Uh, We know that we uh, belong to God through Jesus Christ. And we know that God deserves better than to have, uh, have us live lives that are filled with sinfulness. We know this, all of these things. And yet, on the other hand, sin seems somehow deeply attached to who we are. our our sin over time we just excuse it and become so comfortable excusing it that our sin it it really it really feels deeply attached to who we are and then uh, on some level we think to ourselves that, that if God loves me then he needs to on some way be okay with my sin if he loves me which I believe that he does then on some level God has to look the other way or tolerate this sin and the reason he has to is because my sin feels so attached to who I am well Paul is going to tell us that a Christian is someone who has been acclaimed by God to be his own servant and that under grace under grace our service is to present to God a life of holiness so, so a, Christ, a Christian is someone who's actually been claimed by God, grabbed by God, even in our sinfulness to be his own servant, so that under grace, then, our service would be to present to God lives of holiness. Now, Paul's going to begin this passage by making a statement that I think that we uh, overlook. Paul says that every human being is under some kind of contract. Every human being. One who denies God, uh, one who uh, has an uh, agnostic regard towards God, one who believes in God. Every human being is under some kind of contract. Now, in the Roman Empire, a slave was someone uh, under contract. A slave was someone who was under contract to serve someone else generally for a period of seven years. If it was a royal household, it would be service for 14 years but a slave was someone under contract to serve someone else for seven years. Now, uh, a slave wouldn't necessarily be a class of people. Uh, a slave would actually uh, share the class of a particular household. So, it was better to be a slave of one household than another household, but be that as it may, a slave was someone who was under contract. Uh, sometimes the uh, slave would uh, do menial work, but sometimes a slave would do very notable work, uh, a teacher, an attorney, a physician, imagine that. A slave would very likely uh, perform his or her work side by side with someone who was free or perhaps someone who uh, was once a slave and uh, now they are a freedman or a uh, freed woman. A, a slave could uh, work right alongside uh, someone who is a slave for another household, but a slave who was someone was someone who was under contract now very often a person would actually be forced to sell themselves into slavery uh, there would be a great financial need and so they would uh, sell them uh, sell themselves uh, under the servitude of someone else for a 7 year contract and then at the end of the 7 years uh, they would be uh, given their wages and they would be freed And and by the way, a person would be freed, generally speaking, uh, when they hit age 30 or age 40. Of course, uh, death is just around the corner, so that slave is not as useful. But a slave is someone who is under contract. And at the expiration of that contract, they would receive their wages and they would move on about their life. And a slave would work alongside other slaves, but also work alongside someone who has never been a slave or someone who uh, was a slave, but as free. You get, you get the point. Now, Paul's use of slavery image is actually very, very practical. In the church at Rome, it is extremely likely that a third of the, of the congregation were slaves. And it is very likely that a third of the congregation had been slaves at one point in their lives. Now, nobody wanted to be a slave, to be sure, but it was just a reality of life. And everybody in the Roman church knew this. It's interesting that Paul says in verse 19 of our passage, I am speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. What does he mean by that? He he probably means uh, that he's being as clear as possible. He's speaking down to them. He's speaking in a practical way so that they really understand. In fact, he's speaking so clearly that even the dull of understanding can get it. That's the point of the imagery of a bondservant. So first, what we need to hear Paul say is in verse 17, and that is this. Uh, What exactly is a Christian to Paul? Over the course of Romans, this letter, Paul has defined what it means to be a Christian in a number of ways, and he does it again in verse 17. He says, thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were commanded. It's an odd passage. It can be confusing, particularly because of the word obedient, and because of the phrase standard of teaching. And that word and that phrase seems like Paul is praising a person for deciding to become a Christian that that a person has done some kind of work or performed some kind of effort that they might become a Christian but we have to remember at the very beginning of verse 17 what does he say thanks be to you to me thanks be to God Verse 17 is about conversion. It's a a statement about what it means to be a Christian. The entire verse is about God's work of conversion. Uh, So thanks be to God. And this phrase, standard of teaching, uh, it's a way to describe the the preached gospel. In in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, Paul is going to describe the gospel as the pattern of sound words. And so Paul is taking liberties uh, in terms of describing what the gospel is. Standard of teaching is a phrase that describes the gospel. And when Paul says uh, obedient from the heart, he's actually referring to faith. We can look at Romans chapter 1, verse 5, where uh, Paul says that the preaching of the gospel has brought about what? Has brought about faith? He says in 1.5, has brought about the obedience of faith. So we see the word uh, obedience, but we're to think uh, converting faith. And we see the phrase standard of teaching and we're to think the preaching of the gospel. What's the point? A Christian, every Christian, is someone who has, by the power of the gospel, something in common. Verse 17 is talking about our con- our conversion, and he says that something in common is this: every Christian, every Christian, is someone who has been freed from slavery to sin. It's right there in verse 17. Uh, the contract with sin, so to speak, uh, has been destroyed. And then uh, verse 18, it goes on to say that Christians, uh, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Uh, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of Righteousness. And we see this transition from one kind of contract into a different kind of contract such that Paul would use the same terminology, the the terminology of slavery, set free from sin and and have become slaves of righteousness. In order for this to make sense, we have to know that Paul believes that every human being is under contract, that nobody is free. And anyone who would claim to be free is not free at all, according to the Bible. Verse 16 says that a person is either under contract with sin, which Paul says in verse 16 leads to death, or a person is under under contract with uh, obedience, which leads to righteousness. And as we saw in verse 17, obedience from the heart is faith. So there you have it. You're either under contract with sin or you're under contract with faith. Now this becomes very clear if we're willing to uh, adopt Old Testament terminology for exactly what Paul is saying here. When we use Old Testament language, we can say that a human being is either under the covenant of works, a covenant that says do this, and then you get to live, a covenant of works, or a human being is under a covenant of grace. You are saved by God's rich grace through faith alone. Well, this describes every human being. It's remarkable that we could uh, look at this passage and see that sin is universal and that uh, every human being is subject to sin, uh, not simply the rebellion of Adam, but sin in their daily lives. But what Paul is saying is he's saying something a bit more. He's saying that every human being is under contract. It's either a covenant of works or it's a covenant of grace. Now in verses 15 through 18. Paul says that a Christian is someone who has been claimed by God to be his own special servant. Paul says in verse 18, a servant of righteousness. If you recall from Romans chapter 5, Paul has already told us that Adam's disobedience has brought about death and has brought about condemnation to all humanity. But Paul also says in Romans chapter 5 that in one act of righteousness, talking about Jesus' death on the cross... In one act of righteousness, there is justification and righteousness for all who believe. The, the, the sin under the covenant of works, the sin by which we are represented by uh, Adam's disobedience, uh, the, the sin uh, which leads to death in condemnation, that sin is a sin that we are delivered from in the second Adam, in Jesus Christ our Lord. You are represented By the first Adam or the second Adam. That's what the Bible says about you. That's what the Bible says about me. But what's unique for a Christian is this, is that when a Christian uh, sins, what they're actually doing is they're returning in some way to this broken covenant with Adam, a covenant of works. And so in verses 15 through 19, Paul says that every human being is under some kind of contract. Every person is a servant of some sort. But from the second half of verse 19 all the way to 22, uh, he says that the servanthood that we have as Christians is a better kind of servanthood. A better kind of servanthood in every way. So as we make our way, looking at what Paul says about everyone being under a contract, we need to understand this that every member of the church at Rome would have understood Paul's picture of the irrationality of sin for the Christian life. And here's why I know that they would have understood it clearly. Sin, in the Roman congregation, as Paul speaks to them, sin is like volunteering yourself, volunteering your life to an old master. In verse 16, this is a person who is presenting themselves to someone. You have been freed from that master, Paul says to the Roman church. Freed from that master. The contract with that master has actually been voided. And yet, you keep getting up in the morning, showing up at his house each and every day to find out what he would have you do. There's no requirement for you to do this, Paul says it's an old master and the contract doesn't exist any longer there's no no requirement for you to get up in the morning and find your way at your old master's house no requirement at all and and not only that it's sheer foolishness and irrationality because you have no contract with this individual which means you have no protection. They don't have to protect you. They don't have a contractual obligation uh, to do anything for you. Uh, This uh, person who used to be your master, as you uh, go and submit yourself to them without a contract, without protection, uh, he can abuse you, and he will. He can manipulate you, and he will. He can use you however he sees fit, and he will. Because you keep showing up on his doorstep, seeking to follow that old master. And do you think that your old master is going to love you without a contract? Not only this, for a Christian to sin, in in some sense, is to actually turn away from the better contract. To exchange a gracious gracious contract with a works contract, which is really no contract at all. It's a promise of uh, death and condemnation. It's important for us to to put ourselves in the seat of a Roman pew, to understand the nature of, of being a servant in the life of that congregation. A third of them are servants, and a third of them have been servants, and the other third know very well what it means to be a servant. And Paul says that for a Christian to sin, it's in some sense, even in a small way, it's to return to the former master knock on his door, to ask if there's anything that can be dutifully done for him. Well, just imagine for a moment, working under someone without any contract. Imagine working under someone, but no contract. What will you do? If you don't leave, if you stay, which is foolishness, what are you going to do? You're going to do this. You're going to look in the eyes of that master and you're going to do whatever it takes to make those eyes shine and be happy. You're going to work very hard to justify yourself. That's what you're going to do for a master who is not your master. All you you have is to meet uh, the master's uh, goals and expectations. And if you can do that, then you justify your existence. If you keep that master happy you justify your existence. I really don't think that this is hard for us to imagine being pragmatic Americans as we are. We know that paradigm of finding success by virtue of our own hard work, that very philosophy, finding success by the virtue of our own hard work, well, it's a a sacred talisman in American culture. But the danger of such such an approach before God is that we will uh, hope to earn his love for us try to earn his love for us, work hard to earn his love for us, and instead receive nothing but separation from him. We will think that we've satisfied him. We may even feel that we've satisfied him. But God says all we're going to receive is condemnation for wrongdoing, because it is impossible to work our way into the heart of God. The law says this, do this and live. And that's what that master will say to you if you go back to him and knock on his door. He is going to say, do this and live. Do this and make me happy. Do this and be justified. But it's not possible for a Christian to do that. A Christian knows better. It is not possible to justify ourselves. We don't belong to that contract. We belong to a different contract. And as Christians, this can actually be rather confusing because we do, in fact, sin every day. I hope that you're willing to acknowledge that about yourself, my brother and my sister. We sin every day. We break God's law every day. And we should know this. Our sin always lies close at hand, and we have a very hard time imagining how God can claim me, a sinner for his own. How can God claim me when my sin is so firmly attached to me? God does not have me as his child in absence of my personality, right? God has me as his child along with my personality, along with my life experiences, along with my background, along with my hopes, good, bad, and otherwise. When God possesses me, God has me, God keeps me, he has all of me to himself. He loves me, he treasures me. And it's very difficult for us to think how it can be that God can have me as his child, And yet I can still be a sinner because my sin, it just feels like so much a part of who I am. And yet God draws us into an intimate relationship with himself. Loves us, exalts over us, treasures us, values us, is filled with affection for us. I feel my sin. And yet he still intimately draws me to himself. In Jesus Christ, my brother, my sister, God loves us, cherishes us, and treasures us. And he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. But he also doesn't wait for me to become lovable before he loves me. And he doesn't wait for you to become lovable before he will love you. So what then about my sin? What Paul is saying is this. Even though... Even though our sins feel so natural to us, a connected appendage, and and even though our sin feels like uh, it will always be with us in this life, this particular sin, it will always be with me in this life, even though we feel that, and even though we also feel a little sense of success every now and again because we seem to be winning a small battle and a particular sin seems to be shrinking in our lives. Even though sin feels so natural to us, close at hand, (laughs) Paul says that it still does not belong in your life at all. It doesn't belong in your life at all. What Paul says is he says that this uh, this grace law distinction can't be used as an excuse for your sin. Uh, I am under grace and so my sin is my business. We don't say that, it's coarse. But we think that. I'm under grace. So my sin is my business. I'm not perfect, but I'm also not terrible. Do you realize we can always say that? I'm not perfect, but I'm not terrible. Paul says that that to sin is actually to slowly begin to allow sin a certain mastery over you. But sin doesn't belong to you at all. And at first, sin doesn't seem to be quite like this. I mean, we sin, we admonish ourselves, or a Christian brother or sister admonishes us. We confess our sin, we grow in sorrow for our sin, and we try and avoid sin in the future. And this is appropriate. This is what a Christian is called to do. This is what Paul calls presenting our members to righteousness. He says it in verse 19. We also know that there are Christians who, uh, who don't do a very good job of that at all, who uh, neglect their sin, who neglect admonishment. They refuse to acknowledge their sin. They deny their sin. They grow accustomed to it. And they, they no longer bring their sins before God. And they allow their consciences to be seared. We know that this can happen to a, a beloved brother or sister as well. But by far what's happening in the Roman church is this. They were converted as adults. That's most certainly the case. The majority of those in the Roman church, they became Christians as adults, and they remember very well what Paul means when he says in verse 19 that they have presented their members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Paul knows that about them. They know that about themselves. But what Paul says is that we're we're to be the kind of people who present our lives to God in a different way that we are not in bondage to our sin. We acknowledge it. We confess it. We ask our brothers and sisters to acknowledge sin in our lives. We trust that God is taking care uh, of us through his own power of sanctification and we continue to walk in life and we acknowledge our sin again, over and over and over again. This is the Christian life and it's good for us. This is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what it means to present our lives before God. And what God has done for us, by his great grace, listen carefully, he has given to us his law. In Jesus Christ, the law now no longer becomes the source of our condemnation and our death. The law becomes a law, uh, not that justifies us, but it becomes a law that reminds us of our sin and directs us to Jesus Christ. This is what happens to the law. The law becomes a tool for God's grace in our lives. The the law becomes a tool so that God can exercise his mastery over us. He is our master. And the more we say to ourselves, no, 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 I don't need a master. I need perfection according to his law. I can justify myself. You're working under a different contract. God has placed us under a contract of grace. And under that covenant of grace, when I sin, and I know I do, I confess my sin and I know that I have Jesus's perfect righteousness and that righteousness is the righteousness that justifies me always. It's not my own righteousness. I confess my sin with a good conscience. I confess my sin regularly. I say sorry quickly. I listen to my brothers and sisters willingly because my sin doesn't condemn me. My sin draws me closer to God by his great grace. And that law, as it's applied to me, reminds me very pointedly of who it is that saves me. And it is not me. And so the law becomes good and useful, beneficial. Under the covenant of grace, the law actually drives me to my need for my Savior. Not just every month or every week, but every day and every minute and every second. God's law is beautiful. And under his grace, it drives me to my need for Savior, who is my Savior who is the perfect one. You see, the law guides our footsteps in such a way that we understand more about the one who has written the plan for redemption. The law tells us who our great God is, describes to us the character of our Holy Father, and also shows us the kinds of behaviors that are pleasing to our Holy Father. And in this regard, the Ten Commandments are dripping with the covenant of grace. We know our God. I cannot stand before my God. I must be represented by the perfection of another Jesus Christ, but I know my God through his law, and I love him all the more because I'm shrouded by the covenant of grace. That's the contract I live under. And if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, this is the contract that you live under. And so this use of the law places places us on our knees in confession. This use of the law guides us in our life such that our life is a testimony of God's great character as well as God's great affection for us. For someone under contract with sin, those under the covenant of works, the law decimates them in this life and in the life to come. To the person who says, I can earn my keep before God. That person's life, well, it's already filled with condemnation. It's a brutal master over a humankind that's already fallen in Adam's rebellion. This is why verse 21 is so poignant. Look what verse 21 asks. Verse 21 asks, what fruit were you getting at the time from from the things of which you are now ashamed? Isn't that interesting? What fruit were you getting from the things of which you are now ashamed? Do people sin with the expectation of receiving some fruit? Verse 21 seems to be saying exactly that. That there's something about even our sin. Under the covenant of works, we think that uh, it'll somehow be uh, spun in such a way that I'll justify myself and my sin. But Paul says, what fruit are you getting? He says, for the end of those things is death. Imagine taking all of humanity and ranking humanity, the good people over here and the bad people over here. The good people have nothing to boast about at all unless they have Jesus Christ as the second Adam, unless they have a relationship with God through the covenant of grace. They have nothing to boast about. And this is a new and better use of the law. But this shows us what it means to be a servant of God under the covenant of grace. Look at verse 19 to see what the law does for us, Christian. As we present our members as slaves to righteousness, by God's grace we are what? Where's the fruit in verse 19? Where's the fruit in verse 19? By God's grace we are led into sanctification. By God's grace we are led into sanctification. The law, by God's grace guides us in our sanctification. A couple of uh, uh, strange terms. You may never use them, but there might be some dinner party occasion where this year, this word would uh, get you some mileage. And the word is uh, monergism, one work. We believe that Christ, that Christians are converted by one work, the work of one individual, the work of God. Monergistic conversion, one work. But we believe that our sanctification is synergistic, work together. It is God commanding us what we are to do to be pleasing in his sight and uh, Uh, By the indwelling spirit, Uh, we are following that law. We are loving that law. We are confessing before God, submitting to his will for us, setting self aside more and more, and elevating the role of our king and our master. Uh, God, by his indwelling spirit, us in our work and effort. Our sanctification is a cooperative work. It's synergistic, while conversion is monogistic. We love God's law. We submit our sense of self to it measure ourselves according to God's law turn ourselves before him in an attitude of repentance that we might walk with humility that we might walk with sincerity all the while knowing that we are never uh, never motivated by working real hard to escape condemnation we have been given that in our conversion we will not be condemned and so we're motivated not by escaping condemnation, not by spinning our good works so that we look as good as possible. Uh, we are motivated how? By our desire to serve our master well as he serves us in converting us and sanctifying us. And great gratitude for our master for more and more over the course of time, bringing our lives into conformity with his will Bringing us to a perfection that will entirely be with us in the age to come. And verse 22 says, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, this is the promise of servanthood to righteousness in Jesus Christ. But look where Paul finishes in verse 23, this great, beautiful summary Paul has described that everyone is a servant under some covenant, under some contract. But a Christian is a servant to God under the covenant of grace. But in verse 23, uh, Paul seems to be giving us an option. And he says, which, which of these do you prefer? He says, do you want to work uh, for your life? Do you want to be able to always have the opportunity in your life to say, I did it on my own, I did it my way, and I succeeded. Do you want that? It's tempting, isn't it? It's very tempting. I did it on my own. I did it my own way. For an American Christian, to take, to take that thought right into our Christian walk is extremely tempting. Do you really want to be able to say, I did it on my own, and I did it uh, my own way? That's dangerous. And as Christians, we need to, we need to evacuate that from our rationale. Or would you rather do this? Would you, uh, do you want the kind of life that is uh, absolutely and entirely guaranteed apart from your efforts? Now you don't get to say, I did it on my own and I did it my own way. That's true. Under the covenant of grace, you do not get to say, I did it on my own and I did it my own way. But if you are willing to accept God's work on your behalf through Jesus Christ as a gift, as a gift, well you will really and truly receive that life. Everything else is mere boasting. Everything else is grandiose self-praise. Do you really want to be able to say, I did it on my own? If so, you get nothing in return but death and condemnation. But if you are willing to accept the covenant of grace, the perfect work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, You really and truly receive that life. And you will be his servant. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you have made us, elevated us into a better kingdom. That you have brought us into your kingdom and you assert your rule and your reign over us. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for not loving your means of grace for us in Holy Scripture, in prayer of confession, in the communion of saints in the church. These are ways that you feed and care for us. Now would we delight in them, because we have a better king. In Jesus' name, amen.